Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. A little over a year ago, I had the privilege to interview one of my mentors, Dr. Eric Antonson. He has an amazing ability to break down complex topics into easily understandable tidbits. And because of that, NASA put him in charge of answering a question no one had ever tackled before. What is the medical risk to humans on a trip to Mars? And what do you bring with you to mitigate that risk? So let's listen to that interview and see what he has to say about it. All right, so who are you and what do you do? My name is uh, Eric Antonson. I fill a couple of roles. I am currently acting as the, explore, as the element scientist for exploration medical capabilities at NASA Johnson Space Center, and that's a part of the human research program. And the other portion of my job, which is about 20% of what I do, is assistant professor of emergency medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. I have an affiliation with the Center for Space Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and I see patients as an attending physician at Ben Taub General Hospital in downtown Houston. That's a lot of work. Yeah, I didn't plan well. <laughs> <laughs> Since you are in the research side of things, where are we going? Like, what is what has NASA been doing, and what are what's our our direction now? NASA missions. So, a lot of people have been under the mistaken assumption that the space program was canceled in 2011 when the space shuttle stopped flying, mm. which couldn't be further from the truth. In reality, we've had 16 years of a constant human presence in space at the International Space Station, and after the space shuttle stopped flying. We continued to send people up there, both American and other international partner astronauts, uh, through use of the Soyuz spacecraft out from Russia and Kazakhstan. Yeah. And that's been happening for quite a while. We've gotten pretty good at it. Um, we know what we're doing. Uh, we have good ways of, of approaching that challenge, six months to a year in space, in low Earth orbit, in an orbiting platform that we've characterized pretty well. Uh, the next steps for NASA are several fold. First, um, you've heard of Orion, a multipurpose crew ve vehicle, MPCV. Right. Those are um, the same thing functionally, an Apollo-like vehicle that is supposed to be the next vehicle for the U.S., at least the government vehicle. Um, and that's had its first flight test. There's some more flight tests coming up. And that is supposed to go out to the moon and out to other vehicles that will eventually transport us to Mars. Uh, those missions are called the Gateway Missions. And last March, William Gerstenmaier, who's the head of the Human Explorations Directorate at NASA, made the announcement that we're going to be putting basically what amounts to a small space station, a Skylab-type vehicle around the moon, uh, and we're targeting 2024 for that. That's called the gate Deep Space Gateway. That's a starting point for further out missions. It allows us to go to the surface of the moon, return there, or to test out the deep space systems we need in order to try to go to Mars. And that follow-on mission is called the Deep Space uh, HAB, or Deep Space Transport, and that's scheduled to go up around 2027 with a one-year shakeout or precursor mission for Mars travel happening in 2029, and then targeting a two-year Mars transit mission in 2033. Those are the com upcoming exploration missions. It's a little bit different from the commercial space flight venue where you have folks like SpaceX, Blue Origin, and other groups that are looking to try to take over the commercial market in low Earth orbit. So basically what you're, what you're talking about is putting a, a station around the moon to act as that test bed like what you're saying you're, you're down here in Antarctica to do, but on a slightly grander scale. Slightly grander scale. Um, and you want to take baby steps at first and go places where... Uh, you have a little bit more control and test your systems out there, and then you move from more control to less control. So the best places for us to start with trying things out are oftentimes in the lab or in analogs that we create and hold on NASA property because we can control them as tightly as we need to, and we can break things readily there without having a lot of consequences. You come out to some place like McMurdo, or to the next step, the South Pole, or to the next step, field camps with small groups of people. Right? And NASA does this with their astronauts. They send folks out to these field camps in Antarctica. You come out to these locations and you try things that are harder to do and have some more consequences if you break, but they're actually going to put your technology and your procedures and your approaches to a little bit more of a test. Mm -hmm. And so the gateway missions, the things that are supposed to happen around the moon, are that next step for how do we go further out. The last time we went to the moon was 1972. 
there's only been 12 people that went and it took about a week to get out there and get back right yeah if you think about trying to get to mars where the missions now are over a thousand days typically when we do our planning for them that's a whole different order of magnitude than anything we've ever experienced before and it's going to take different approaches so you got to approach it in a stepwise organized fashion so this kind of like test bed technology shakedown that kind of thing is something that nasa engineering has done for a long time how are you applying that to medicine since that's the other half of your background yes uh so the other half of my background, besides being a practicing physician, is that I have a PhD in aerospace engineering, and I was an experimental engineer for the Air Force working on electric propulsion for spacecraft. Um, I focused on fluid dynamics and propulsion, and I did that work for quite a while. Um, then I went to medical school. So that was a... Serious underachiever. <laughs> that was a little bit of a different life and a different approach to things, and it was... Um, it was a major transition moving into the world of medicine after coming out of that type of background. Um, in the way that NASA has handled medicine and spaceflight in the past, they have bought down most of their medical risk in spaceflight by selecting the healthiest people they could possibly select. You know that the astronaut selection process is a rigorous process where they poke and prod into every crevasse and take a look at all your body parts and try to make sure that there's nothing that's going to surprise them and that you're not going to have any major malfunctions just in the fact that you're human for the missions that they're looking at. And from the early parts of the space program, most of the risk that we took on was from either getting people there through launch, this high energy riding an explosive thing up to orbit, right? or from the high-energy slowdown of landing and coming back from orbit to Earth. Challenger, Columbia, those are expressions of the risks that we take in that domain. Mm. But for the space shuttle programming, for the programs before that, when people are spending you know, two weeks in this place, tops, the real problem isn't that the human breaks down. You just don't have enough time. You've, you've bought down your risk by having, sending really healthy people. Then you go to the space station and you start sending people up for longer, six months. And there's more opportunity for people to break down, but you've got a pretty good system in place. You can send up whatever supplies you need. You can ask for help in real time and get guidance when you need it. For example, like research ultrasound. People get guided through that all the time, in real time. Um, you have some advantages here that you don't have in exploration space flight. And so when you start looking at moving beyond that domain, you start moving into a risk domain where the failure of the human as part of that human vehicle system becomes a much, much more prominent portion of the risk than it has been in past spaceflight. And so now, actually working to integrate that human system in with the vehicle and mission architecture is a much more high-profile need than it has been in the past because we've always been able to select ourselves out of uh, real medical problems for the most part. So basically people are pretty, er, the selection process and humans are pretty good at surviving for two week stints without issue, but when we start extending that beyond that, the, the human form becomes a much more high risk system. You start seeing more impacts the longer that you're up there, right? So in the six-month missions that we've had on the space station, there's a lot of things that people kind of aren't aware of. Some things do make for high-profile events. The Italian astronaut whose helmet malfunctioned and, you know, a lot of water started filling his helmet in the zero-gravity environment. That was a hardware malfunction that very nearly became a medical issue. People get things in their eyes just because things don't fall to the floor. So you get foreign bodies in their eyes. You've had at least several spacewalks that have been canceled because of urinary retention issues. You've had multi multiple urinary tract infections in space Several of them have been antibiotic resistant. And even on the way back from the moon, we had Fred Hayes, who essentially was Eurosceptic. Mm. And if you look at how we planned for that and how we handled that, you know, he got tachycardic. We know that because we had a heart rate monitor on him. We don't know what his temperature was because the thermometer on the ship was broken. Interesting. We did find out when he was back on the ground that his urinary tract infection was a pseudomonas strain that was antibiotic resistant to both of the antibiotics that were on board that spacecraft. How did he end up with that in spaceflight? 
the reason he ended up with it in spaceflight, we think, is because when they made the transition from the Apollo module to the limb, he kept on the condom cath urinary collection system for much longer than he was supposed to. Right. But even in the space station today, male astronauts sometimes have to straight cath to get urine out. So they're putting themselves at higher risk for infections. It's a different world than it is in the terrestrial environment. And so you have some different things that put you at risk in places that you might not expect. So if you translate the things that happened with that type of case or what have been happening in low Earth orbit out into the domain of now you're going to Mars and you have no ability to return and it takes maybe five or six minutes because of the speed of light to get communications back and forth between Earth rather than the you know one second or so it takes right now, you're in a different risk domain and yeah. you have to plan much more rigorously than we've ever had to do in human spaceflight, right? If you yeah. translate Fred Hayes out into that domain, then he probably dies from urosepsis in the mission on the way. That's not a very happy thought to have. It's not, but it's one of those things where the more we try to do, the more challenges we take on, the more we realize, okay, what level of rigor do we need to bring to medical preparations? If you're going out camping for a weekend, you don't bring a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, just like some duct tape and band-aids, basically. Yeah, exactly. If you're going out for a week or two or a month, it might be different. You might bring more. You might plan better, right? The same thing applies in space flight. In low Earth orbit, you can kind of get away with basically having a box of medical things that you open up when you need them. Some ibuprofen, some Band-Aids. If you have a crew medical officer who happens to be a physician up there, maybe you have some expanded medical capability. They even keep a ventilator up there in case you need to intubate somebody. Never been used, right? But you have some more capability. If you're starting to go to the moon and it takes you th several days to get back, we're in the domain where we've already experienced. But if you're going to Mars... It's a whole different planning process because you can't resupply, because you can't get somebody out of there if something goes wrong. Exactly. And remember, when we go to Mars, we're not going there to do medicine. These are crews that are most likely not going to be medical folks. So you want to plan enough so that you can take care of the things that are most likely to happen and not over plan. If you include too much mass, too much volume, too much stuff dedicated for the what-if scenarios that everybody can dream up, then you're going to start accruing risk in other areas because that ventilator that you packed or that defibrillator that, you know, maybe is that one in a million chance of happening in the crew you selected, that might be taking up room that you needed for more propellant or for computer power <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> or the transmitters you need to get the help you want. Exactly. So what you're saying is there's basically a, a kind of a, a sweet spot. There's, a, there's an area where you have hardware-related, flight-related risk. Um, and that you can mitigate and, and, in some, and, and you want that to go down. And there's an area where you have medical-related risk, and if you bring an entire hospital with you, you can lower that. But by lowering that medical risk, you may also inadvertently increase flight risks. Yes. And this is the balance between medicine and engineering. Gotcha. Now you've got to find a way to have how you prep for medical speak the language of engineering which is quantitative. So you now have to use actual incidences, probabilities of occurrence that you can get from populations that are generalizable to your astronaut population. Um, how often are things happening in spaceflight? Actually calculating out the epidemiology of these things to the best ability that we can, even though we haven't had that many people fly. Remember, the total number of people who've ever been in space in our species history has been less than 600. It's a pretty small number to be working with. And it's a small N if you think of them as a well-controlled study, which they're not, right? Yeah. So we learn slowly from this. Um, but we have to find a way to speak the language of engineering so that we can justify the things that we want to include uh, and show why they're important. Make requirements for what gets included in a spacecraft or in these missions that are based as much as we can on evidence and not on some random person's clinical experience, which is what happens when you're at the edge of these domains and going out and doing something new. So how do you do that? How do you find, how do you find these risks and decide what is the ideal thing to pack with you? How do you even get direction on this? 
So a part of it is learning from what's happened in spaceflight in the past. Even though it isn't a perfect analog for going to Mars, the things that have happened in low Earth orbit give us an inkling about what happens. And there are studies that go on. The Lifetime Surveillance of Astronaut Health um, is one of them, where they sort of record as much as they can about the, the medical events that have happened and the things that have gone on. You start over time to build a database, and they've been building this over the last number of years of human spaceflight and taking uh, information from all the prior programs and you build out those numbers you build out that database and that information and eventually you get to a point where we did about 10 years ago where you can start thinking about something called probabilistic risk analysis it's an engineering tool that is used when you don't have enough information to really make a statistical analysis of what your risks that you're taking on are because you're modeling things that are rare rare events, things that you can't characterize very well. Okay, what Eric is talking about here are tools that we can use to help answer questions when no one knows the answer. This is kind of the bread and butter of applied sciences. Essentially, science accepts that any answer we come up with might be wrong, so our goal becomes minimizing that chance of wrongness and providing an estimate of how certain we are that our theory is correct. A measure of uncertainty, if you will. The tools used to estimate this uncertainty change depending on how much data we have. When we have absolutely nothing, we rely on a best-guess approach and ask experts to consider the problem and think about possible outcomes, like, what would a creature from Jupiter's moon Europa look like? We have no clue, but we have a sense of what environment this hypothetical creature would live in so we can take an educated guess. When there's some data, but we're applying it in a very tiny sample, like, to a patient who might have a particular illness, we use something called Bayesian hypothesis testing. This is the pre-test, post-test likelihood model that doctors apply when screening and diagnosing patients. Basically, I use an expert opinion based on the history, physical exam, and other factors to estimate how likely it is that my patient has a given disease, like the flu. With that pre-test probability in mind, I then choose the appropriate blood test or radiology test or whatever test to rule in or rule out that disease. Different tests are better for different pre-test probabilities and choosing the wrong test can easily give you a false positive or false negative result. Knowing when to use which test and how to interpret the results is a lot of what medical education focuses on. In a case where there's a lot of data and a large sample size, we use frequentist statistics. And this is what most people think of. That's the p-value-based analyses with carefully constructed experiments that most of us know from medical papers. Now, when there's too little data for a robust frequentist or Bayesian analysis, but there's enough data that we shouldn't just disregard it, we can bolster our estimate of uncertainty by using probabilistic risk assessment tools. This is the case with data from spaceflight. We have less than 600 people who have ever flown in space, and the vast majority have done so for less than two weeks. Given that all these people have been exceedingly healthy, that doesn't give us a lot of medical problems to work with, and it also doesn't estimate the conditions that would happen on a three-year mission. But it's not nothing. So how does this work? Well, briefly, since no one's ever gone to Mars, we don't know the type of conditions that would occur, or how often they would occur. But we do have analogs, like prior long-duration space missions, remote terrestrial research stations, and health data from individuals with similar demographics to those we plan to send to Mars. This gives us a limited and rough sense of what a Mars crew might experience over the three-year mission and how often it might occur. Since this data set is small, though, the average incidence for these conditions is only a rough estimate of the actual incidence. There's a lot of unknown uncertainty in this estimation. And it's also static. It doesn't change based on the number of people I'm taking or the duration of my mission. So we can do better, and we can do that by borrowing tools the engineering world uses to estimate failure rates in mechanical parts. Essentially, we add this estimated incidence data from the analogs to a computational model, a model where we can plug in different mission parameters, like mission duration, or how many people we will send, or will we be using spacesuits, that kind of thing. We then hit the run button and instruct the model to fly hundreds of thousands of missions. After that, the simulation shows us a picture of how well our estimated incidence performs in various mission parameters. Was there a lot of variation from our estimate? Was there only a little bit of variation? 
How did the incidents change if we fly a longer mission or add lots of spacewalks? It isn't perfect, but it gets us in the ballpark, and it's far better than using expert opinion alone or simply applying frequentist statistics to a tiny set of data. It also opens up some really interesting possibilities, because when this kind of a risk tool is combined with a model of the medical system itself, we can then start adding or subtracting capabilities into the system and see how that impacts the medical risk. We can simulate not only the type of mission, but the type of medical system we use and what capabilities it has. With a tool like this, we could switch around mission parameters, medical gear, data systems, and even the type of crew members we send. This helps us uncover the lowest possible medical risk, not only for a Mars mission, but for any potential mission we could imagine, and all before we even start building the actual system itself. This is what Eric is talking about. So let's get back to him. And so the tool that was developed, started in development about 10 years ago called the Integrated Medical Model is something that uses a probabilistic risk analysis approach to get you to the point where you can start to answer the question, what do we think is going to happen and how often in these types of missions? Because if you can answer those questions, then you can start to say, ask the next question, which is, what would I need or want to have with me in order to address those things? Which is a different set of questions. It starts to get at the capabilities that you want to plan for in these missions for the medical needs you're likely to encounter. And now those tools have been getting developed at NASA throughout the past years. Um, it's a quantitative approach. It's not something that as physicians, in many cases, we're often very comfortable with. Those who do research and have to actually do evidence-based medicine and statistics and epidemiology as part of their work are more comfortable than those of us who you know, do clinical care and maybe aren't involved in those domains. That makes sense. But... The reason why physicians struggle with it sometimes is it then kind of holds your feet to the fire, right? You, mm. you know, if you're being put on the spot and being asked to plan for any eventuality, right? Yeah. Now you've got to put a flag down and say, this is what I think is going to happen. And now you're going to be, you know, sort of held up in the future. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, did you get it right? So you have to acknowledge, right? These things are hard to predict. Probabilistic risk analysis gets us in the ballpark. You still need clinician experiences to take those numbers and to help derive what is it that we want to bring? What are the capabilities? And then you have a place where you transition away from clinician experience and what the capabilities you'd like to have with you are, whether that capability is medical imaging, such as ultrasound, or the ability to do laboratory analysis, or the ability to do physical exams. Any These are all different types of capabilities. You transition from that point into a systems engineering domain. So the engineers start looking at the things that you're saying that you want to have with you, and they're saying, all right, how do we do that? What are the functional requirements that this system has, right? If you want to have medical imaging as something that you bring with you, you got to decide what type of imaging, what does it look like, how much mass volume does it take, what does the ultrasound machine need to run, what type of data does it move around, what type of training does a person need, right? What do you do with the information you get? Exactly. And all of those things are sometimes things that we as clinicians sort of make assumptions about, right? In many scenarios in terrestrial hospitals, you want an ultrasound, you, you may send your patient away and they go away to a technician or somebody who does the ultrasound themselves, gathers the data, puts it into the PAC system so you can look at it, or you might not even look at it at all. It'd be the radiologist looking at it and interpreting it and giving you a read back, right? Mm -hmm. All of that is a huge amount of software, data movement, expertise and a whole bunch of other people that now has to be packaged into what you're putting on your spacecraft if you've got no recourse to anybody else. Yeah, and those take years of training in their own right. And physicians aren't usually aware of the engineering challenges that come with these things. We look at our iPhone and we say, look, this is the expectation I have for how fluidly data moves around. <laughs> but but that behind that, there's a massive amount of engineering and software that's written We just don't have insight into it a lot of times. As an engineer, I have insight into it because I had to do that stuff. I had to write code. I had to go do debugging. It was it was a whole different world. Um, 
And so when I look at the problem as a physician, I start, I can ask the question, so what do I think we'll need? What's likely to happen and go wrong? What capabilities does that imply that we got to have? And then as an engineer, my brain from that world takes over and says, all right, how do I start breaking that down into a manageable problem? Because there's a lot of things you think you need. You need skill sets. You need pieces of equipment. You need medications. You need ways to keep track of those medications so you know when you're running out. There's all sorts of different things that go into how do you provide a medical system for a crew. So it takes quite a few people to start breaking down that challenge. And what you do is you start with a concept of operations. How do you envision doing medicine? And pull those numbers from those probabilistic risk analysis tools in to drive the capabilities that you prioritize up to the top, push the ones that you don't down to the bottom of the list, and then start with engineering teams decomposing what the functions of a system have to be in order to do those functions, what skill sets and what resources do you have to have. And all those things become requirements. <laughs> requirements that you give to designers who are building this system. And once you get through that process, then you get to start testing it and see where you messed up. So you're, you're, what you do essentially is take the existing experience and break that down into its into categories as to what needs to happen. So prevention, recognition of problem, diagnosis of problem, treatment of problem, monitoring, resolution, back to that same cycle. Mm -hmm. and, and throw in rehabilitation, right? So think about this. When astronauts come back from a six-year, six-month mission up on the space station, mm -hmm. they basically have a lot of neurovestibular challenges. They're dehydrated. They've accommodated to space flight. If you send somebody to the surface of a planet like Mars and you don't have that massive team there when those folks come back, how do they take care of themselves, right? It's a rehabilitation question. How do they implement that without a massive team there to do a lot of that for them? Some of them can't even walk when they get back to the Earth. So how do you do self-rehabilitation with the only practitioners being the ones who are being rehabilitated? Uh-huh. So what you're, what you're doing is you're taking these experiences, you're saying you, you identify what the issues are, you're putting them into a probabilistic issue of what could happen, you're designing the algorithms and mechanisms for recognition, treatment, rehabilitation, and monitoring of these patients or these astronauts, and then you feed that entire block to a design group that comes up with a system that will essentially manage it, hopefully for them, or augment their ability to manage it themselves, and then you test it. Yeah. It kind of simplifies it a little bit because it's a variety of different groups, right? So okay. if you start with the, with the concept of, hey, I've got a vehicle, it's a big piece of engineering work, and I want a system in there to help with monitoring the health and performance of the crew and intervening if necessary if something goes wrong. Right? Sure. A medical system. A massive part of that is handling data, right? Mm. Like understanding when people are getting sick, early detection, those sort of things. That's a biomonitoring problem. And uh, then understanding what it is that's happening. That's a diagnosis problem. And then understanding what you do about it. That's a treatment problem, right? Mm -hmm. But all of that is information that you process and think about and look at and come to a conclusion, conclusion with. That's all data, right? So one of the big central pieces of this is a data architecture. How do you actually collect information from whatever monitors you decide to put on that system, right? Even starting before that, how do you decide which monitors to bring? Heart rate, blood pressure... O2 sat, those ones are easy because they're vitals, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of other things you could monitor, right? Yeah, chemistry, you definitely want to look at what the air quality is, what your CO2 level is in the atmosphere, what the water quality is, are there any impurities in the water, um, what's your radiation exposure over time, how is your mental health status, especially in long isolation or very close-knit groups. How right? are people getting along? Exactly. These are all things that you monitor in some way and that information has to go someplace and be ready for when you want to pull on it to look at it over time and make decisions about what's happening right that's data that's all about the seamless flow of data interpreting it presenting it that's a software problem how do you actually have something other than a gigantic excel spreadsheet with lots of data points that a crew has to go through 
So now you have to make user interfaces and make them useful to a crew. It's a software problem. So this is part of what a data architecture does. And if you have, if you make the decision that you've got to have an ultrasound there, for example, how do you pull those images quickly off the ultrasound and put them into a electronic medical record so that it's in a template and the information is in a way that the ground support can actually understand for situational awareness and for consultative services. And it's presented with enough bandwidth that you can actually transmit it without disrupting anything else the spacecraft needs. And that's all software problems, right? Yeah. That's all data architecture and development. But all of the interfaces that we just talked about, those aren't necessarily all just software interfaces. Some of them are hardware, some of them are crew computer interfaces, things like that. The identification and management of interfaces is a systems engineering problem, which is different from a data architecture development problem. <laughs> okay. So within the exploration medical capabilities element, we have a medical data architecture team that works out at NASA Ames that has a bunch of really good engineers and software folks. And we also have a pile of systems engineers who actually look at looking at the capabilities, interpreting what that means, deriving the functionality of what the system is supposed to be like, and identifying and managing those interfaces. So those are two completely separate engineering problems that if you're not an engineer, you might not realize you need completely different skill sets to do. That's a lot of complexity into what is ostensibly a, or seems like it would be a relatively simple, solvable problem. It's interesting because if you think about if you think about the things that we said earlier, right? Trying to go to Mars is something that's never been done in the history of the human species. All of our experience with the exception of 12 members of our species has basically occurred within 400 miles of the surface of the Earth. Right? Yeah. Now you're talking about going 490 it's just a quick jump across the pond. <laughs> That's what going to the moon was like. Going to the moon was like a quick weekend camping trip, right? Or a week-long yeah. camping trip where you packed enough to get through it, but you didn't have to worry about it too long because it wasn't that long. If it takes three years to do this, somebody's going to get sick. It happened in one of those missions going to the moon. Fred Hayes would be dead, right? And that's just one in 12 that's people. That's one in 12 people. Yeah, so you're talking about sending an equivalent number of people for a much longer trip, it's the, that risk becomes much bigger. Much, much bigger. So in order to adequately address that risk, right, you have to understand what the magnitude of the risk is. We think we understand that. You also have to understand how do you enable a crew to do a lot of things that normally you have a whole bunch of different people with a lot of different skill sets contributing to overall. Here at McMurdo, we've got, what, five doctors here, one nurse, a PA, a Canadian um, flight nurse. We've got two Air Force paramedics. We've got a pharmacist. And then all the other people that are around on the station that all have wilderness EMS training, or some mm -hmm. of them might even be PAs or physicians. Yeah, and what we're talking about is this is 1,000 people for, you know, six months. Right. Yeah. With real-time communication back to So let's go to the next step. Denver. What's out at the South Pole? Intermittent communications, challenges getting logistics and supplies out there, 60 people out there. You have at least one doctor and one nurse out there right now. Um, a little bit less capability, right? Mm -hmm. Then go to the next step. What goes out into the field out here? You have scientists and specialists and teams that are going out, but they're not going out for three years and expected to live on their own without the ability to actually catch or eat any food out there, they're going out for weeks at a time, right? Some of the camps will stay a little bit longer. And some of those ones that stay a little bit longer, they bring medical personnel with them. The one that's going out to the Shackleton Mountain Range has a PA embedded in their group with specialized field kits, right? right? And they have communications and the option to get evacuated, right? Mm -hmm. So even in these most inhospitable environments that we can experience on Earth, these experiences are nothing like what we're going to run into when we try to do something like go to Mars, where the orbital mechanics, the physics of the situation dictate that everything changes. So it, it may, at first glance, look like it should be a relatively simple problem. I don't have a lot of space to bring a lot of stuff, so I have to figure out what's the right stuff to bring, 
and how I can get as much capability out of the things that I do bring as possible. That's tough. Well, there are engineering approaches to optimize that stuff, and they're not approaches that we typically deal with in the medical side of the world. But by applying systems engineering approaches to medical problems, you have ways that are you can approach these issues in a standardized, repeatable, organized fashion. Well, that brings up another another issue that that would potentially be useful here is that most most of the time people look at NASA and they say, well, you guys are flying space missions. And that's not something that ever really applies on Earth. But what you're describing here is an area where you are pioneering the combination of engineering and medicine to solve a new problem. But this is something that could potentially be applicable right back on Earth again. Are there, like, what kind of lessons do you think that you could that we could collectively as a society learn from this kind of approach? Well, I think there's more than just that lesson. I think there's two categories of lessons. One is the larger approach and and taking a quantified, systematic, repeatable approach to medical issues and planning is one thing. And then there's all of the other things that we develop to try to expand those medical capabilities, either in technology and solutions like that to things. So, for example, one of the things that we've invested in along with the National Space Biomedical Research Institute over a number of years has been trying to drive the development of ultrasound to be able to as a to move from just a diagnostic technology into the therapeutic domain this right. is using focused ultrasound beams to push kidney stones around or to potentially break them just through skin instead of having you know through skin contact with the ultrasound probe and focusing on the stone itself rather than having to go in and do invasive procedures like lithotripsy right there are technological advances in a lot of these different areas that we make as we're trying to solve the how do we provide more in space flight that definitely apply to terrestrial medicine and that's just one example of it but the overall systematic approach that you're talking about there's a reason why groups like the military the navy folks that have to plan for long-term expeditions and things like that are looking at the approaches that we use um, trying to figure out how to do the right planning how much capability is the right amount of capability right Taking a systematic and evidence-based approach to that is something that can be applied in a lot of areas, right? It could be applied here at McMurdo, for example. It could be applied in, in Arctic expeditions. It can be applied for military groups that are looking to deploy small teams. It could be applied for military groups that are looking at large expeditions. Hmm. It's an evidence-based way of approaching what you need. It's like combining logistics expertise with evidence-based medicine, epidemiology, and systems engineering, right? That's, that's really what you're trying to do. How do you, if we can't predict the future, what's gonna happen on these missions, we can get as close as possible or in the ballpark by learning as much as we can from what has happened from the analog populations and the people that are involved. From those things that statistically float to the top or through probabilistic risk assessment float to the top of the chain and planning for those and looking at mapping out the medical capabilities that address lots of different needs. So picking a picking an approach where, you know, traditionally on Earth we have a lot of, it's a very forgiving environment. We have a lot of resources. We can make a few mistakes and we can cover for it by pulling those resources in quickly. Whereas in spaceflight where you have less of a forgiving space, you have to be better about planning. Exactly. One of the reasons why ultrasound is so attractive as an imaging technology is because if we look at the top 100 things that we're worried about in spaceflight, about 60 to 70% of them are things that could benefit from having an ultrasound on board, either in identifying and diagnosing a problem or using it for image-based guidance or procedures or... Um, potentially, when we're successful with some of these advanced therapeutic ultrasounds, you know, using it for treatment modalities, right? So something like that that covers a whole bunch of the different things that we're worried about brings you a lot more bang for your buck in terms of mass and volume and power that you spend on putting this in a vehicle than, you know, if we were to try to pursue some other imaging modalities, maybe. So it, that's then your ultrasound is a good example of a successful medical innovation that has 
been drawn from the ground and brought back to the ground, and you're trying to do the same thing in a, in a host of other different areas. That's We're human any way you cut it, still. <laughs> Despite some conspiracy theorists. <laughs> if you, as, as I think you've pointed out, aerospace medicine is the, is the um, challenge of looking at something that is normally healthy in an unhealthy environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it does take a little bit of change in perspective in the way you approach problems. But whether it's ultrasound, lab analysis, biomarkers, physical exam, whatever it was, at some point these things were all new and they were defining what normal was. And then eventually that became sort of our built-in way of looking at things. What do you think? Normal temperatures for your patient? What's a normal abdominal exam? What do lung sounds sound like? What does an ultrasound picture normally look like? There's normal for space flight as well. And it's just a job of characterizing that. And then looking at the differences when you have pathology. It's no different than any other advancement in medicine. That's that's a good way to look at it. Um, one other so a couple other things that are slightly off the track of where we've been right now. Um, some of the things that NASA has been looking into, or at least other agencies or companies are, is different types of propulsion systems. How does that, uh, uh, you're talking about thousand day missions to Mars. I'm assuming those are using the propulsion systems we currently have. Yes. So my background on my engineering side is as a propulsion expert. I worked on advanced electric propulsion systems for spacecraft. Um, and so it's an interesting tie-in for me to think about how putting a different rocket on a spacecraft can affect your medical risk posture, which uh, it's always been an interesting uh, thing for me to think about. When we talk about 1,000-day missions to Mars, when we talk about nine-month time frames to get there and then how much time you have to spend on the planet in order to get the planets aligned in the right way so you can spend another nine months coming back, those time frames are based on in NASA, design reference missions that use a couple of things, assumptions about how we're going to do it, right? Um, And when you hear Elon Musk talk about it with SpaceX, these are assumptions about how he's going to do it, right? Right. The assumption is they're going to use chemical rockets, and those chemical rockets, you know, you need to have the planets lined up the right way so that you can do a certain type of transfer orbit. You give yourself a big boost at Earth, and then you coast, all the way out to Mars and hopefully you intercept it it's in the right place when you get there and when you get to Mars you fire your rockets again or you aero break into the atmosphere you do something to slow yourself down so that you can right. be captured by Mars right so not all the DRMs use chemical rockets but that's what we're used to those are the things that make the big explosions there are a lot of other uh, types of rockets that are used in spaceflight right now that typically haven't been large enough in the past to actually get the job done. Electric rockets are some of them. We use ion engines and haul thrusters for satellite stability and positioning Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of things um, and have for a long time. Uh, Those are much, much more efficient engines, but they're much lower thrust. They don't give you as much boom, right, Um, or as much force all at once. The difference is you can push at a low level of force constantly for a very long time with a very efficient engine like that, which is different from giving yourself one big burst with a chemical rocket and then coasting all the way there. And at some point, you get places that are far enough away that it really makes sense to accelerate halfway there and decelerate the other half of the way back, and you can do it much, much faster. Other types of rockets, like nuclear thermal engines, are things that we looked at in the 60s, um, like NERVA. Um, some of the design reference missions actually use that to try to say, what's the difference if we did some of this advanced rocketry and tried to go to Mars? And you can shorten the trip time, right? Mm-hmm. So the real benefit of doing and looking at these other types of rocket that are out there, some of them are experimental, some of the things we've already tried, is it in the risk analysis, do you take off enough time to significantly decrease exposure to the radiation environment in deep space and decrease the likelihood that medical problems are going to occur and thereby make a much safer mission for yourself, right? Less time, less chance of issue. Exactly. And so just recently, um, one of the big ion engines passed uh, um, 
a mark for engineering testing that said, hey, some of these things are starting to come into their own. Some of these things are starting to get to that point where we might actually be able to use them for some of this stuff. Um, because in the past, a lot of them have been too small. And you've probably heard of things like Vasmer and stuff like that. Right. There's a variety of different types of engines that are out there that can potentially shorten the trip time, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's where is the maturity in the engineering technology. But many of them also have one other big problem, right? If you use chemistry to make an explosion, all the energy for that explosion is contained in those two chemicals. In the case of the space shuttle main engines, it's water, hydrogen and oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. If you use an electric rocket to do these things, you have to provide a power source for the electricity, right? Well, that makes sense, yeah. So you actually either have to have massive solar panels, right? You Or you have to have a nuclear reactor or something else because what you're really talking about to get the, the energies you need to do to do this is hundreds of kilowatts of power, which is bigger than what we typically do with solar panels today, right? That's a lot so of So that's power. one of the areas where you have some challenges. And, and you know, if you were to fly a nuclear reactor, yeah, you, you kind of take away that challenge or that issue. But you're flying a nuclear reactor. Yeah. So you introduce different types of risk or different types of complexity, right? And so as those technologies mature, as the rockets get to larger and larger capabilities, as the power systems improve, um, those opportunities to shorten those trip times can be pretty significant, right? And when we get to that point, you really have to look hard at, hey, is the investment experimental nature of some of these things for these really new designs of rockets is is the complexity and the risk you add in from technologically going to that type of approach um, going to buy you enough risk deduction in medical or in radiation exposure or other things. So it's, it's again, it's that flight hardware versus medical risk. And in this case, it's flight hardware starting to increase the potential for medical risk just by the nature of the hardware. Well, if you put a nuclear reactor on board, sure, you, you now have to worry about, you know, the addition of nuclear exposure and the proper shielding from the reactor, right? That becomes an issue, yeah. And you, you start to design ships that now require nuclear technicians and increase the number of people on board. And So there's a lot of a lot of potential benefits in, in doing these things and, and uh, you know, you got to keep in mind the risks. That's all. It's the, just risk benefit. Yeah. Solar electric propulsion, where you actually use either solar concentrators to heat up hydrogen fuel or you use solar panels to make electrical power for ion engines. As they advance, they offer different possibilities that maybe introduce somewhat less risk. Gotcha. Uh, also, in terms of risk benefit analyses, do you think that future missions, given the increase in risk in medicine, would include? a specially trained physician or somebody cross-trained in, say, engineering and physician, something that you would, somebody that would have that expertise. I think that's what everybody would like, right? At um, least everybody in our field. Yeah, well, NASA right now, by its standards, requires a physician crew member in any missions that are interplanetary um, and any missions that are beyond uh, 210 days, I think, is the number not positive that's the exact number but it's something like that okay there's um, a standard and so there is a standard but what that means is that missions to the moon don't require a physician right unless they're going to be there for a really long time the gateway missions that we were talking about earlier those are slated for 21 to 42 days they don't require a physician and you know the question of whether they should or not they probably shouldn't i mean a physician may be a part of the crew that contributes to what the mission is and that makes a lot of sense, but just having a physician for the sake of having a physician isn't necessarily a smart thing to do in human spaceflight. So you have to figure out where is the right place to draw that line where the human risk, the risk of injury and illness, starts becoming significant enough that, hey, this is important. And you take your cues from history as much as you do from evidence-based medicine today, right? You look at some of the missions to Antarctica that happened in the past, the Shackleton missions and the groups that, that did and didn't take physicians and, and what happened, right? In seafaring missions of the past, sometimes people took physicians or medical personnel and yeah. sometimes they didn't, right? And they're all doing their own risk assessment. 
Well, yeah, there's that, but also seafaring missions of the past. That physician was a very different type of doctor than what we're using today. I agree with you completely. <laughs> okay, but so it's it's a it's another one of these risk benefit analyses, and at this particular point in time, it sounds like having somebody who is cross trained might would be useful, but a dedicated physician crew member probably takes resources that aren't needed. Depends on the mission, right? The really yeah. long ones, yeah, you know, you're going to need it. The short ones where's the sweet spot i'm not sure right Hmm. but if you have somebody who's a physician and an engineer that you know potentially opens up more doors for what skill sets that fewer crew members can bring to the mission to make sure that it's a success in the end for any of these types of things the currency that we're talking about is the ability for the crew to actually achieve the mission objectives that they are given yeah it's hard it's hard to plan for a mission if you don't have a particular objective there so that makes sense. Um, all right. And then I guess the, you know, where you move towards the end of this stuff. If, uh, if you are, if you had, say, the opportunity to speak to future people interested in these kinds of fields, say, like on a podcast about exploration medicine, what advice would you have for them? <laughs> um, it would be the same advice that somebody told me a long time ago when I was telling them that I wanted to try to be an astronaut someday. And that advice is, that's great, keep shooting for the stars, but also make sure that whatever you're doing is something that you love to do. Because no matter what ends up happening in your career, what successes you have, what failures you have, if you love what it is you're doing when you go to work, it's going to be fine. It'll be worthwhile. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for uh, thanks for taking the time to, to talk with, with me on this stuff. And uh, look forward to seeing wh- what the future holds. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Since this interview, Dr. Antonson moved on from the role of Exploration Medical Capabilities Element Scientist to serve as the Assistant Director of Human Systems Risk Management at NASA. He continues to work with Baylor and Venton, but his NASA role now includes determining the acceptable risk level for humans on experimental space missions. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. Feel free to reach out to us at any time through the website or at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Music is written and recorded by David Keough. Thanks to our production team, Sultana Peckley, Emily Stratton, and Jeremy Seeker. As always, thanks for listening, and see you soon.